welcome to more to come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing news. I'm Heidi McDonald, uh, the co-editor of PW Comics World, as well as the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. Check us out on Twitter at, at PW Comics World, on Facebook at PW Comics World, and on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com, and of course on Publishers Weekly slash comics. Today, I am here with Callista Brill, who is a senior, senior editor? What is your title, Callista? Senior editor. Senior editor uh, at First Second Books, which had pretty much an amazing year, uh, in an amazing year for graphic novels, so I wanted to pick Callista's brains a little bit about editing graphic novels, what it's like to work at First Second, and all the other industry dirt that I'm sure she knows. <laughs> Callista. Uh, yeah, was it uh, a great year, a good year, the best year? <laughs> How was your 2014? It was the best year, um, which is uh, both sort of more remarkable and less remarkable. Uh, when I tell you that every year we have is always the best year. Um, <laughs> for a second, it's not a, a very old company, and so we have the sort of pleasure of every year is an improvement on the last, um, and this year was a great big improvement on previous years, which was really satisfying for us. Yeah. What made it an improvement? Um, oh, I just mean financially. Yeah. But in terms of sort of the strength of publishing, it was a really strong publishing year. You right. Know, sort of for creative satisfaction. Yeah. We had a lot of really beautiful books. Um, a lot of people are talking about this one summer, the Tamaki Cousins book, as sort of a cornerstone title for this year. And I think that one has definitely stood out. And then, of course, Gene Yang's book, um, The Shadow Hero, which is his uh, original backstory for a now-public-domain golden-age superhero, um, got us into a lot of of comic spaces that we don't normally see a ton of attention in, sort of what we, you know, would call the mainstream or conventional comics world. And ditto wrenchies. Right, right, yeah. Animals. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty amazing, amazing year. And, I mean, and Andre the Giant, and yeah. in real life, and uh, uh, the Emmanuel Joubert book. Um, yes, yeah, How that, the World Was. Uh, yeah, that book also, I loved, that was an amazing book. Um, he's incredible, that guy. I think he's one of my favorite cartoonists in the whole world. Yeah, well, he certainly has the knack to take someone else's story and make it his own, which not a lot of... Uh, not all, I don't know, it's a skill, it's a skill, but, uh, you know, uh, Box Brown did that with Andre the Giant, also. Yeah, they both, I mean, a good biographer has the sort of ability of putting themselves so thoroughly in the shoes of their subject that they kind of disappear. Um, I mean, Andre the Giant is a really interesting book. I, I love it as much as anything I've ever published. Um, and it's sort of great because Box Brown is somebody who has this really, really idiosyncratic, and easily identifiable style. Like, you look at a page of comics that Box Brown has drawn, and you know who drew it. Um, And he did such a lovely job of, like, staying true to his own style and staying true to sort of his um, aesthetic, but then also completely immersing himself in this topic Mm -hmm. and sort of um, bringing out this very, like, authentic and immersive look at um, this really weird and sad and touching life. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, let's dig down a little bit on Under the Giant, because now this is a book you acquired, correct? Yeah, so... So, I, yeah, let's let's talk about how it first entered your life. <laughs> um, I'm probably going to mangle this, because I don't remember the details exactly, but um, I, I think the rough order of things in this case, and this is actually not atypical, um, is that I saw something he posted on online. Um, he Box did a series of really sweet one-page comics that were about um, the making of The Princess Bride. 
Um, and they were based, I think, on anecdotes from, like, the, you know, cast interviews on the extras of the Princess Bride DVD. I know this because I've watched your Princess Bride DVD, like, a million <laughs> yeah, times, like, so like, like, we all have all my favorite <laughs> anecdotes. Um, and the one with Andre, the, there were a couple that featured on the Andre the Giant, I think, and they were really affecting, and, um, we had been we talked to box a few times in the past about like projects that we might want to do with each other nothing had ever really materialized but he was definitely on my radar and then um he got in touch and said listen you know i I did these little one pagers and i really i'm super into pro wrestling and i'm super into under the giant and i feel like there's a there's a biography to be had here are you interested and it was just one of those moments where you can't believe that somebody hasn't already done the thing that's that, that 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 is on the table. I was like, yes, obviously we have to do this. Um, it was like the easiest editorial decision I've ever made, um, and it as it turns out, it was one of the best editorial decisions I've ever made because the book has been really successful, and the book is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it turns out that Box Brown is like a brilliant nonfiction writer and a brilliant biographer. Right. Now, how did you, though, I mean, you know, most people, when they hear the name Box Brown, obviously would have thought of him as being a very indie guy, yeah. you know, and, and a very small press guy, yeah. and also marching to the beat of his own drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what, you know, I mean, you said you were talking to him before, I mean, what made you think that, that he was someone who, cause, circle around here a little bit, but, I mean, doing a full-length... 100-plus page graphic novel, um, you know, we could sit here and we could come up with 10 great ideas for graphic novels and it would in the next five minutes. And it would take years and years and years and years to actually do a graphic novel. So it's like you have to really commit to it. Yep. And not all indie cartoonists are interested in that. Oh, um, it's true. Or have, the, or have the discipline. I'll be brutally honest. Yeah, I mean, I, look... There's a whole lot of different ways of making comics, right? And there's a whole lot of different ways of publishing them. And First Second has a really specific model that we follow. And, you know, our model works for our books, and it works for the people who do books with us. And that's not everybody. Um, so it is something that we think about really carefully when we're thinking about acquiring a book is, does this book make sense for First Second? And does this author make sense for First Second? Um, now, honestly, the does this author make sense for First Second question usually basically boils down to does this person like us <laughs> because we kind of we we're you know look if we like your comics we like you right so um for us if if, if the enthusiasm is there in our on our part it's just a matter of making sure that it's reciprocated and you know um i was a little maybe a little bit anxious right at the beginning because brian box um is a publisher in his own right he runs retrofit comics which is a fantastic indie comics right. publisher and i kind of thought is this going to be weird you know us publishing the work of another publisher but the fact is retrofit does its thing and its thing is very different from what we do and it lives in a very different publishing space. And um, Box had thought it through. He had basically thought, you know, here, I want to do this book. This book doesn't feel like something that Retrofit would publish. It feels like something that First Second would publish. Let's see if First Second wants to do it. And so there really was never any... There was never any weirdness there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there almost never is. You know, I mean, the indie comics world... Um, First Second is in a weird space because we often get sort of naively lumped in with the indie comics world because I think we have a very similar uh, sensibility. Um, and we tend to sort of publish a lot of the same people that 
you know, are, are published in and sure. kind of live in the indie space. Sure, like James Kachalka or Farrell Darrenbull. Exactly, two great two. examples, yeah. yeah, and both of those guys had books that came out with us this year. Um, we are not an indie, uh, and, you know, even though we kind of, we sort of have the mentality of an indie, but, you know, we're part of this giant multinational publishing corporation. Right. McMillan. McMillan, yeah. 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 Um, and so when, when it comes down to it, our model is really very much more like conventional book publishing than indie comics publishing or mainstream pamphlet comics mm-hmm. publishing. Um, but, you know, the sort of, the pleasure of what we do is we love... We love all comics. <laughs> um, we really do. You know, we're, we're very sort of Catholic comics readers. We love, you know, sort of the whole, anything that has a panel in it is pretty much okay with <laughs> us. And we have, we have like, you know, we follow a lot of stuff. So um, it's very nice for us to be able to draw from a lot of different sort of subcultures and comics and find ways of making, you know, those creators at home at mm-hmm. first second. Right, right. That's a sort of circuitous answer to your yeah, question. Yeah, but I mean, it's really an important uh, issue. I mean, there's more. I just wrote a piece this morning on The Beat about, you know, this is a golden age, and you can look on Tumblr for an hour and see more great art than you would have seen in a month. Tumblr you know? is incredible, yeah. I know. I've been finding, um, I actually, I can't talk about it because I'm in the middle of negotiations, but I, I, uh, I am trying to pick up a graphic novel that I found on Tumblr just through a Tumblr post that got reblogged like a million times, you know, mm-hmm. and it is, it has become a great resource. Right, right. I spend now, a lot of time trolling on Tumblr. <laughs> of course you do. We all do. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's, it's so entertaining. I mean, yeah. you can just spend a night on Tumblr. It's an activity. It's not, not just a website. Um. But, I, I mean, do you find, um, I mean, I think it is, you when you commit to a book and the artist commits to a book, I mean, this is a long process. It's a long know? partnership, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, the other thing is we generally don't expect to be committing to a book. Mm-hmm. Like, for us, we have, a, we have a very small list. We publish about 20 books a year. You know, every year that number grows a little, a, mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, so, you know, it is increasing, but... We're a small outfit, you know, we have a small team, mm-hmm. um, and we have a kind of a boutique sensibility. Um, so for us, it's a big deal when we make a commitment right. to publish a book, because we just don't have that many slots. Right. Um, and what's more, we don't generally sort of expect to do a lot of picking and choosing from an author's output. I mean... There are exceptions, right? Box Brown is a good exception. Like, I'm not thinking Box Brown is going to be publishing every book that he makes for the rest of his life with me. He, right. The guy runs his own publishing right, company. Right. And like, he's very, he has, yeah, he's very prolific. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, there are, there are people who, when we bring them on, we're kind of thinking, all right, if this goes well, you're here for your whole career. Right. So um, it is, it's important to us that those relationships be really solid mm-hmm. and that we have, you know, sort of no... Um, no qualms whatsoever about, you know, getting into bed with these folks, you know, creatively and and business-wise. Right. Now, let's talk about another book uh, kind of similar, The Wrenchies. Now, yeah. this was another book you acquired, correct? Um, so this is another one that's sort of lost in the... What, what, what you <laughs> these, will are learn. Com- these are complicated, kids. If you're listening about how to pitch your book to for a second, obviously this is not a one-time thing. Obviously yeah. this is a long courtship. It is. Not you know, a first date on Tinder, okay? Yeah, I know, right? Oh my God, swipe yes. That's actually, that's, that's not a bad model. But um, leaving that aside... Uh, This I don't remember if Mark formally acquired it or if I did. Mark Siegel, our Mm -hmm. editorial director, he and I worked together very closely um, editorially. And I think that he 
He might have picked this up even before I came to First Second, because this book was a long time in the making. Right. This is not something that... I mean, you take one look at Wrenchies, it's like 400 pages right. long, and every page is a goddamn masterpiece. Right, right, like, right. Like, this is, this is sort of the work of a lifetime. Yeah. So, um... I've been working with Farrell now for six years. Um, which is, See, this is why I'm trying to... This is what I'm getting at. Yeah. This is not like... You know, this is a marriage. This yeah. is not... This is not a, a... A relationship to be taken into lightly for either party. No, either no, party. absolutely not. I mean, you know, we want... I mean, look, marriage is not a bad metaphor, right? Because in a marriage, both parties have a pretty significant... Um, incentive to uh, please and remain pleasing to um, their partner and that's true with a publisher you know I mean you 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 get into a publishing relationship with your publisher and your publisher has a strong incentive to keep Mm -hmm. you happy and you have a strong incentive to keep your publisher happy and when both people are operating under those principles it generally works out really well right right now with Farrell um the book, I mean, obviously he's an amazing artist. Yeah. Uh, again, once again. And, um, you know, he has published his own books in the past. Um, his amazing Omega the Unknown. Marvel, please put it back in print. Please, yeah. Marvel, put it back in print. Um, uh, but, I, so with the Wrenchies, was this a proposal? I mean, you know, with Box Brown and Andre the Giant, you pretty much understand what you're getting. With the Wrenchies, you know, this is something brand new, far-flung imagination. So, you know, how do you... Did did Farrell do a proposal? I mean, what was the form that that you that you know you think made this book something that you, that first second wanted to acquire? Um, I cannot answer that question okay. because I do not remember. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I can. I can answer it sort of more generally. Sure, sure. Um, which is that there is sort of no magic bullet um, for getting acquired at first second, and there's also no kind of standard format for a proposal. Um, some of our books are acquired in proposal form. Some of our books uh, come to us sort of in the twinkle of an eye. I mean, like, there, occasionally we will bring on a project with almost nothing to show for it. That happens less and less frequently now. Um, the first few years that we were publishing, it was kind of the Wild West here at mm-hmm, First Second. Sure. And we were just like, I don't know, that you said a thing at this party last night, and that sounded amazing, <laughs> so why not try publishing that thing that you said? Yeah, swipe yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and some of those have worked out really well for us, um, and, you know, some not so much. We, we are a little bit more rigorous now. Um, generally, you know, it... The amount of material that we need to see in order to decide to take the risk on publishing a book varies pretty much uh, exactly in proportion to um, how well we know the creator and um, what their track record is like. Right. So if it's somebody who, has, who hasn't published anything before um, or who has published stuff not very successfully... Usually we need to see more just to sort of reassure ourselves that we're making the right, that we're taking a good risk and that we're making the right decision. Um, if it's somebody who we've worked with before or who has, who's coming to us with a really solid track record, we kind of know they can deliver. You know, right. we don't need to see right. as much. Right. Now, um, again, in the process of working on the Wrenchies, um, I mean, did you work on story with Farrell at all? I mean, did you, or was it art? I mean, how do you, you know, how does the six years, what, what happens in these six years? <laughs> um, so it depends a lot on the author. In the case of Farrell, m- more or less what happened is he would sort of go off and, and make magic happen and then turn up like a couple times a year and sort of say, look, I made these things. And we would like ooh and ah and kind of, you know, tell him he's amazing, which he is, yeah. and send him back to do more of it. Um, I I did a... 
I I did a preliminary editorial pass with him um, right at the beginning to kind of make sure that I understood the shape of the book. Now, Wrenchies is a kind of a Wrenchies is a weird example to talk sure. about with the editorial process because it is a um, it is not a book that is especially interested in um, sort of the conventional, like, commercial storytelling, Mm -hmm. right? So um, it's not a book where I, as an editor, can kind of come to it with my usual toolkit and be like, let's look at the story arc, and, like, (laughs) is there a rising action, and, like, what happens in Act 3? Like, that's just not a useful conversation for a book like Wrenchies. Um, It is a useful conversation for certain kinds of books, um, but one thing you have to be to work at a place like for a second is flexible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I try to sort of approach each editorial conversation with a pretty fresh mind and not try to bring my own sort of rigid expectations or processes to the table. Um, And with Wrenchies, you know, I I kind of, I talked with Farrell a bunch at the beginning to get a sense of what it was he wanted to accomplish. And it sounded, it sounded crazy and it sounded visionary um, and it sounded wonderful. And so he went off to do that. And then when he was finished... Um, I, you know, I would sort of review material in chunks, and then when he was done, I did a big once-over on that book, and there were, it was sort of surgical, because I didn't want to mess with it too much, um, you know, you sort of have your chance early in the process with a graphic novel of doing, like, heavy tinkering, but once somebody has committed art to the page, you you don't want to, like, send them back to rework Act 1, right? Right, Um, obviously. Yeah, so... (laughs) And this book, frankly, didn't need it. Um, So, with Wrenchies, I did a big once-over at the end, and that was mostly sort of... uh, One of the useful things that an editor brings to the page if they're doing their job right is um, they are acting as a proxy for the reader, Right. Um, And so, you know, what I'm always doing, kind of in addition to a bunch of other stuff, but my primary function usually is to um, be a fresh set of eyes and bring a perspective that is basically like, okay, I know this makes sense to you. Are you effectively communicating this to somebody who has no context, who is coming to this not knowing anything about this book, not knowing anything about you, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I, my recollection is that with Farrell's book, there were a couple of places where I, I just felt like he had sort of wandered off. Um, because he takes a bunch of leaps in that book. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy book to read. It's a no. challenging book, and I didn't want to dumb it down. There were a couple of places where I thought he was sort of, like, in danger of of losing people altogether. And so we had a couple of conversations about that, and it was great. You know, he is... Farrell, I should say, is a goddamn delight. Oh, I mean, yeah. he's wonderful to work with, and um, he's he's just he's so smart. Yeah. Um, and so he went back and he changed a couple of little things, and that was sort of all it needed. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think um, I, I always called the editor the first reader. Yeah. You know? And like, if you were showing a book around to your friends, and you know, I think that's a, everyone should do that. You know, everyone usually does do that. Even even Dave Sim showed his comics to to Diana Schutz to read, yeah. uh, to read Cerebus until she quit. 
But, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, not everyone is a good editor for themselves. And, and I think just even when you have that long process, as a creator, you know, oh, you, you absolutely. need someone to, you need a lifeline sometimes. Yeah, I mean, look, my rule of thumb is basically, like, you can probably make do without an editor, but the substitute for having an editor is put the book in a drawer for five years and come <laughs> back to it, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, in a, lot of, in a lot of respects, an editor buys you time. An editor is somebody who can bring fresh eyes to a project that you are, like, very, very far away from being capable of having fresh eyes on. I mean, I'm, I'm like, it's more specialized than that, sure. and obviously I have, you know, like, many fancy talents and everything, but, like, at the at the end of the day. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, let's, uh, let's talk about um, another book that has just kind of the book of the year. I mean, I think there's two books of the year. One is the Raj Chess book, and the other is this one, Summer, mm. by Jillian Mariko Tamaki. And, um, you know, I can jump into this book and experience it again and again. Yeah. And, I mean, one time I'll look at it and I'll say, oh, my God, Jillian Tamaki is one of the greatest cartoonists of all time. And then I'll read it again and I'll think, oh, my God, Mariko Tamaki is, like, this genius writer of all time. I mean, the two work in tandem so incredibly to tell this story. Um uh, I didn't mean to work on, I mean, what was it like working on this book? Well, so the, did you just, like, wake up in the morning and say, ah? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is another that didn't need a lot of editorial intervention. Um, I mean, it's interesting, right? So, you know, I have published books where that have been really successful and really beautiful um, and that have that have just absolutely gone through the ringer editorially. This was not one of them. Right. Um, Wrenchies really wasn't either. Um, this one, again, was sort of more a matter of kind of standing back and watching magic happen. Right. Um, those two, as you say, they work, they work together in this kind of phenomenal way. I mean, what you want from a creative collaboration is that you end up with something that is um, more than the sum of its parts. And, I mean, that's... To sort of extend the metaphor, that's what comics is, sure. right? Like, comics gives you something that's better than the words plus the text. It's something else altogether. There's this alchemy that happens, right? And I feel like with Jillian and Mariko, that's that's what you get right there kind of in action. Mm-hmm. Is um, the two of them are sort of such a seamless and such a, um, such a surprising and um, resourced... Uh, creator as a right. kind of single unit. They're yeah. really incredible. Yeah. So that one, um, we we knew what it was going into it, you know, and I and, and this is another one where Mark had had I think he was more editorially involved in the beginning and I was more editorially involved in at the end, which is um, you know, we often sort of like trade off and um, and work together on these books. So I think he had he had done some work with them sort of on the idea. Um, but I don't know, I wasn't there for it. So I couldn't tell you. Right. right. Um, but we we knew what was coming. We knew what we were going to get. And then Jillian went off to draw it. Um, and this is I've sort of mythologized this, <laughs> um, and it's probably not actually how it happened. But the way I remember it happening is um, Jillian went off to draw it, and we kind of thought, well, we won't we won't hear from her for a while because the book is like three hundred and twenty pages. Right. Um, and then you know, eleven months later, <laughs> she came back and she was like, oh. God, that took so long. <laughs> and we said, how did you draw this many pages in 11 months? Now, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm good at, like, making up funny stories about things that um, happened in my past. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's better to, to make the truth something that is good to talk about. So Right. But, I mean, the, 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 the fact is, Jillian is, is not only a phenomenal cartoonist, she's also, like, sort of mind-bogglingly fast. Um, and so that book, that book got made 
in this just sort of marathon burst of creative genius over the course of about a year. Right. Wow. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of our pleasure and honor to put it to paper, right? Yeah. To get, to get it published. Now, um, yeah, I mean, I can't really talk about how awesome this one summer is. <laughs> it really is an amazing book. It's astonishing. It I mean, is, one of the... I mean, it's so evocative. I mean, again, like, you dip into it, and you're like, we've all had those summer experiences, yeah. whether it's on an island or camping out, or we've all had a summer, and it totally just immerses you in that summer world. It does, and it's also, I mean, one of the things about editing graphic novels, about ed- editing anything, is that you have to read the thing you're editing, yeah, I don't know, anywhere between five and ten times. Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes more like 20. Yeah. And um, it's the mark of a really, really great book when not only are you not kind of sick of reading it after five or ten times, right. but every time you come back to it, you find something new. Yeah. And this is, it's a good example. I mean, every time I come back to this one summer, I I find myself reading it with someone else as the protagonist. You know, the first couple of times I read it, I was focused on the little girls, on Rose and Wendy, and then I, re- I had this sort of revelation about it, um, and this, I didn't, I can't take credit for this because it was totally Jillian and Mariko, but um, the mom is the only character in that book who has anything resembling a conventional heroic arc. Right. And she's just quietly having this, like, very powerful, very traditional heroic story in the background of this like right. like odd right. meandering little slice of life story. So it's a it's a weird combination of literary genres mm-hmm. in certain respects and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 amazing. You know, just uh when I was an editor I worked on the comics adaptation of The Lion King. Yeah. Which required me to see the movie The Lion King <laughs> in before it came out about seven times. Uh-huh. And, you know, talk about, you know, you have to like the material. Uh, you know, and I, I haven't seen, I went to see the Broadway show, but I never watched The Lion King after that. Ever. Yeah. And I know it's a great movie, but I just have had, never had a desire. But then the other day, they were talking, somebody was making an allusion to it, and I was like, oh, I forgot about that. So yeah, maybe, maybe 20, come back to it now. 20 years <laughs> later, I can look at The Lion King again. Um, oh, man. Yeah. And now, a book you have coming out next year, you have a book by Jay Hosler, right? Yes, Jay. Yeah, so, and the title is the... It's called The Last of the Sandwalkers. And now, is this a book about crabs? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a book about, about desert beetles. Oh, okay, I was yeah. close. I knew it had some sort of... Now, Jay is a, is a PhD, right? Come yeah, so he's books? an academic entomologist. Uh, he teaches at a university in uh, Pennsylvania, and... Um, he has self-published and and I think also published with an, uh, another another publisher who's not for a second, I don't remember who it is, several non-fiction graphic novels or sort of science-oriented Yeah, he did one about graphic bees. novels. Yeah, Clan Apis. Clan Apis, uh, that he, I believe he self-published it, and um, that was a delightful, wonder, wonderful book. It's great, uh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely made a splash, but that was a while ago, so he hasn't really been heard from for a while. Well, it's because he's gone off to make this, like, magnum opus. Oh, boy. Yeah. it's gonna, About beetles. About beetles. It's gonna, like, ah. Uh, it's going to blow the beetle world wide open. I am I'm crazy about this book and it's it's one of those things where it's a little hard for me to talk coherently about it because I love it so much, but I will try. Um, it's basically 
it has the same feeling as Watership Down, right? It's this epic, like, sort of world-shattering adventure story with beetles as protagonists instead of bunnies. Um, and it kind of, it's about um, the importance of science in this way that is so moving and so visceral and so immediate. Um, I mean, I love whatever i love science right it's like that <laughs> stupid facebook thing i fucking love science um we all love science right science is super great but it's a little hard to articulate why in a way that feels fresh and like really vital and this book does a really fantastic job at that um it is uh it is one of the most beautifully drawn things I have ever seen the jay has like not to get too like technical about it but he has done he just makes really great decisions about character design. So you end up with a story where everything is to scale and everything is accurate and everything looks like it's supposed to look. And it's this really vivid and um, detailed look at the natural world from the point of view of a creature who's like three quarters of an inch tall. Um, and the beetles all look like beetles, but they are also so expressive. Like his decisions about how to handle their expressions and their body language and their faces are so smart. He has somehow managed to create these characters that are very, very vividly believable mm -hmm. as real right. beetles, right. but wow. also so endearing and so immediately accessible as characters. Mm -hmm. um, and so the plot is that a, um, a hardy and brave group of beetle scientists set out from their sheltered, like, utopian... Well, we are going to find out later it's dystopian, but what they think is sort of their sheltered utopian beetle home to discover what, like, lies beyond the gates of their city. And nobody's ever left before, so nobody knows what to expect. And what you find out through their eyes is... Not only do they not know what to expect, but they have no idea that there are living creatures in the world other than beetles. <laughs> so they find a human skeleton oh my. in the desert, and they don't even know... Like, they can't even begin to figure out what the hell it is. And so this is, like, one of the respects in which the book is, is so, sort of so such a compelling argument for how fun science is, is watching these beetles trying to reverse engineer what the skeleton could possibly have started out as. Right? And wow. sort of seeing, like, humanity and seeing mammals through their eyes. Oh, my God. It's so great. Wow. And the story is so exciting. And the art is so beautiful. Uh, well, I you've just got, love you've it. You've got me all excited for it. Oh, oh I'm all excited. When fluttered. does this book come it out? It comes out this spring. And spring. And you guys must all buy it. We will see okay. The Last of the Sandcrawlers. Yes. Oh, my. Well, yes. This sounds amazing. It's amazing that we can be sitting here talking about graphic novel about beetles and getting so excited about it. I know, right? <laughs> but, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about um, this being a successful year yeah. for First Second. And, um, you know, I've been friends with Mark for quite a while. Um, obviously, you know, you and I have been friends. Uh, we see each other around town and so on. And, you know, from talking to Mark uh, about First Second, obviously, when First Second was launched, it was very trendy to have a line of graphic novels. <laughs> and... Um, it very quickly became very untrendy, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, for a second, it stayed the course and come through. And I think you know, this year really uh, just put out such a great line. But but I mean, what do you think? What do you think made this the time? Do you think it was just having you know, obviously, really strong material by strong creators? 
Um, do you think the audience matured? I mean, do you think distribution? What do you, was it? All of that? What? Man, I don't know. I I really don't because it it is it has been a very so sales wise it's been a very strong year for us. Um, but one of the things that's interesting, and I I will be like uh, torn limb from limb if I name any numbers, so I'm not going yes, to. But no. um, one of the things that has been interesting is that when we look at where those sales are coming from. Uh, no one book is leading the pack, right? So this is not really a case, and that's true historically also. Um, you know, we're not we're not in a situation where we have sort of our Harry Potter, mm-hmm. right, or our, you know, I don't know, um, wimpy kid. Yeah, our wimpy kid, exactly. Um, kind of carrying carrying the list in a really conspicuous way. Um, and 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 likewise, when I look at this year, and I think about the books we published this year, obviously we published some like fucking incredible books this Mm -hmm. year however i felt that way last year too (laughs) and the year before that like every year i'm like man what a year you know so it's a little hard to tell um i think part of it is what you said that there is a kind of that the audience for this kind of graphic novel continues to grow um, and that likewise, uh, the sort of general comics reading audience continues to become more receptive to the kind of books that we're publishing. Um, so it's, you know, it's maybe we're kind of making inroads in two directions. One of them is sort of converting people who didn't know that they liked comics into reading graphic novels um, by publishing graphic novels that are sort of appealing to readers of books, mm-hmm. which is something that we do... Uh, you know, this kind of part of our MO, right? Like, we have a bunch of reasons for publishing the kinds of books that we publish, but part of it definitely is we want to publish books that, comic books that are sort of accessible and interesting to people who are not conventional comics readers, as well as comics fans. Um, But I think we're also, we are also somewhat more visible with your sort of dyed-in-the-wool comics fans now than we ever have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And that... It's a little hard to say where that's coming from. I think part of it was driven last year by Battling Boy. Sure. Um, We had this huge release from Paul Pope, and um, that book got us, I think, onto the radar of a lot of people who are, like, really, like, dyed-in-the-wool comics comics people and not necessarily sort of artsy-fartsy graphic novel people. Right. Um, And then I think, you know, it's possible that The Shadow Hero had a similar effect this year because that's a book that really speaks to the superhero comic as a genre, and that's sort of a celebration of superhero comics. Um, But honestly, I mean, this is all, like, kind of speculation. If I knew the answer to this question, I would be a rich Yeah, I mean, I I can't, I can't even, it really is like Legos. It's like you're building the Lego building, and you start, and you put it down the foundation, and then you keep going around and putting up the Legos, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you have a little house made out of Legos, except the Legos are graphic novels. Right, (laughs) right, it's not, you can't be like, oh, well, that roof, man, (laughs) that was such a house. It's just, it's all the house. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I do think Definitely. I mean, you know, Gene, Gene Yang. I mean, yeah. you have to talk about him. I yeah. Mean, I mean, even, you know, if he's not your wimpy kid, I mean, he certainly is, is you know, two books nominated for National Book Awards, yep. which was a first. Yeah. And both, you know, the, the first one was um, American Born Chinese, and then last year, Boxers and Saints. And uh, very groundbreaking, really. And of course, you know, talk about. You know, maybe uh, you could not ask for a better ambassador than Gene. Oh, man, I know that guy. I mean, not to really make him a saint, but he really... To know Gene is is to love him. Yes, and and he's so 
passionate also yeah. about all these aspects of, of comics and of publishing and of diversity and uh, history. I mean, yeah, he really, you know, having somebody like that on your team is... <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gene is sort of, he's that rare article, you know, which is somebody who um, who can make you as excited as he is right. about something just by talking about it. And I mean, that's, it's part of what makes him such a great storyteller, but he is also, I mean, he's a phenomenal speaker and yep. he's a great writer. Yeah. A teacher. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, he, I don't know. I feel like every time I turn around, Gene is doing some wonderful thing. Yeah. We have a really exciting new series coming from him, um, starting next year, which is for younger readers. I think it's the youngest thing he's ever done. Um, it's for, uh, I want to say like eight to 12 year olds. Probably older readers will enjoy it too, and it's it's basically a graphic novel format chapter book series um, called Secret Coders, and it is about um, these kids who go to a school that was uh, built by an eccentric computer programmer, and he's sort of like uh, he left all of these secret puzzles in the school that can only be solved through computer <laughs> programming. So these two unlikely friends sort of set out to crack the mystery of this, like, Hogwarts of, of coding that they mm. are attending. And it is so fun, and it's so um, it's so clever because he works... Gene is actually working in, like, do-it-yourself logic puzzles and basic programming concepts into the actual story. So um, kids who are interested in getting into computer programming, which is, like, again... Gene is sort of this genius with the zeitgeist yeah. because this is something that a lot of um, a lot of like children's publishers especially are getting really interested in right now. And of course, here pops up Gene with like basically <laughs> like the final word you on know, the subject. You know, I I also said, always said like um, as an editor, I was like, make sure you put either the word secret or mysteries in the pitch because <laughs> those are the two key words. I like secrets. I like mysteries. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all exactly. you have to do is say those words. And then coding. Everybody loves coding. Right. You know? so, yeah, I yeah. know. It's like what's not to love. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, why has no one done it before? I don't know. Again, it's like that Andre the Giant book. It's like he pitched it to us and we were like, Duh. I know. Yeah. But, you know, that's, uh, it, you know, maybe uh, technical, but I, I mean, there are a lot of books about wrestling, but there's very few books that t look at wrestling, A, sympathetically, and B, realistically. Yes. You know, and I mean, I'm a lapsed wrestling fan myself. I so know you yes, are. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, you know, you, uh, yeah, I mean, there, it, 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 it definitely, like you say, nothing, nothing, there's not a prose book about Andre the Giant like this. No, so. in fact, I mean, we had the distinction. This was so weird to me. Um, our Andre the Giant graphic novel biography is not only the first graphic novel biography of Andre the Giant, it is the first biography of Andre the Giant in basically any format. Wow. There's, yeah. like, a couple, I think there was, like, one sort of licensed WWF, like, yeah. but that was, like, the character Andre. Yeah, they do that. They. Yeah. I have one of those about, I have some that I got when I was a kid, and they're, yeah. not, they're not realistic. They're not, no, they're, they're not kind of about the persona. Yeah, exactly. yeah, so this was the first ever biography, yeah. which was kind of a... <laughs> Cool yeah. thing. Amazing. Um, what do you uh, what do you think about? Um, I mean, a lot of first second books are for for younger readers for YA. Uh, both this one summer and the Renchies are YA books. Um, and uh, I I mean <laughs> it's ironic again that there's been so much pushback against the idea of publishing books for younger readers, uh, comics for younger readers, which is the 
dumbest thing I've ever said. Wow, but it's true. You know, there's been so much like controversy about Wang Bang Pao. Comics shouldn't just be for kids yeah. anymore. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, I mean, do you think it's an easier sell to get kids before comics for kids now in the Man, book market? I don't know, Heidi. You know, if there is if there is crankiness about people publishing comics for kids. It exists so far outside of my realm of experience that I didn't even know it existed until you told me about it just now. I believe you. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, again, like, it's a little bit weird. First Second has this, we occupy this funny space where we're kind of, um, we're we're part of the comics community, for sure. Sure. Um, and we are part of this sort of landscape of comics publishing, but um, we're also, I think sometimes... Um, we just oh whatever this is going to sound self-congratulatory so forgive me but mm-hmm. we like the stuff that we're doing so yeah, much yeah. and um and you know generally we're hearing good things about what we're doing so it's actually unusual that we like are kind of conscious of you know a big pushback against you well, know, like the, genre I mean I'm talking about literally among periodical publishers oh, and huh. comic shops oh, and I mean sure. you know okay. I mean that's that's I mean I've been hearing for years I mean you know I mean they talk about you know trigger incidents and that kind of thing you know my trigger incident was uh, many many years ago f- hearing one of my favorite retailers who I love dearly just say well you know I don't think I'd feel comfortable with children in my store <laughs> like like yeah and and you know just for anyone in comics who's reading this I mean the book publishing industry is so based on kids publishing I well mean, kids, kids publishing, publishing is the only thriving part of the books publishing yeah. industry right now period yeah. right it's like the only sort of sector of book publishing that is experiencing significant growth right and that's just true in general like that's sort of widely understood um i mean that's obviously not the case in comics comics Mm. is a very different landscape um i mean why wouldn't you raise a new generation of comics fans (laughs) it just seems like the most obvious thing like in in a certain extent we are like this is maybe going to sound a little bit cynical but um a we want to publish really good comics for kids because why wouldn't you want to publish good comics for kids they're fun to read right they're great (laughs) <laughs> fantastic right, sure, right? Sure. it's sort of an argument in and of itself b why wouldn't you want to raise a new generation of comics fans right. c why wouldn't you want to raise a new generation of comics makers right, right? Mm-hmm. i mean the more comics that are out there for kids to read the more inspired like the more varied they, they mm-hmm. are the more different kinds of sensibilities they appeal to presumably the wider the range of people are going to say oh this is something i could do you know i would like to be making these right right and of course you know if you have a kids classic uh, it tends to be something that sells. I mean, you know, not to be too crass about it, but I mean, you, backlist is is the backbone of this. Oh, you backlist know. is a huge thing. Yeah, and I mean, I, as a consumer, as a consumer, as a comics reader myself, sure. you know, the books that I am basically guaranteed to buy, no matter what, are um, Fanographics' ongoing re-release of the Carl Barks Library. Right. You know, the yeah. Uncle Scrooge stuff. Oh, like is am. Yeah, I mean, if Uncle Yikes! <laughs> if Uncle Scrooge is involved in something, like count me in. Right yeah, there, right, right, you know? right. Yeah, and and yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I honestly, I do think just to kind of circle back, I think one of the reasons why things are hitting on so many cylinders, um, although flaws remain. Uh, is that so much the good stuff is available now. You know, it's not like you have to just hear about, oh my God, you know, there were these really great uh, Disney comics. And, you know, I mean, Carl Barks has been available in many formats, but the Fantagraphics reprints are such a great package. You can put it on your bookshelf. You know, it's easy. They're they're so well produced. They have supplemental material. 
Um, you know, yeah, it's a great package. But I mean, that goes for so many things. Like, you know, you could even read Marvel Man now. Yeah. You know, you can you can read all the great works of of uh, you know everyone from uh, Frank Miller to you know Harvey Kurtzman and all this stuff is is out there. Oops! Oh my God! I'm so sorry. Uh, that's okay. Oh, we've been interrupted by a phone call. Yeah. Um, sorry, but you okay. know, just to to uh, to wrap this up though, yeah. um, and kind of shifting gears a little bit, but um, how do you do, now? Do you go to conventions? I mean, you know, one of the other big stories of the year has been, you know, the rise of the calf. I mean, I think I've seen you at TCAF a couple times, right? So many calves. Yeah. So many I calves. love TCAF. Yeah. So we don't. Um, you know, we're not the sort of model of comics publisher whose kind of bread and butter is, you know, like every month a different Comic-Con in a different city. That's sort of not how we operate. We're just not staffed for right, it, right, basically. Right. And I mean, that's not, you know, that's not what, again, as part of a major publishing house, I mean, they are not really set up for these little, you know, these little book fairs. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we do we do the, the, home, the hometown shows, um, and then we... Uh, Sort of depending on the year and kind of the vagaries of fate, you know, we'll exhibit at like a TCAF or an SPX, or we always do San Diego, we always right. do New York Comic Con, we always do MoCA because it's around. Um, and I love those shows. Yeah. I love them, you know, and I love it. I mean, I love it personally because it's wonderful to be surrounded by my people. Right? It's just wonderful to be in a room with like fifty thousand people who are really excited about comics. Like that's just an amazing feeling. Right. Um, or you know. 500 yeah, if it's a sure. small show. Yeah, but, you know. Um, and it's also really useful editorially because it gives me an opportunity to um, see what's getting people excited, to sort of scout new talent, to meet people, to see my peers. I mean, they're just wonderful. Those shows yeah. are really, really useful for a number of reasons. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, I mean, would you personally, like, go to more calves or if you had the, you know, if you had the wherewithal? Do you like going to calves? I love them. I love them. <laughs> calves, they're my yeah. favorite. I, but you and I started out the year together in France. Uh, yes, yes that's right. eating that yogurt, which, uh, warning, warning, well, Robin. Are you going again this year in Angoulême? I'm not. We, we usually do like every other yeah. year. Um, Angoulême, the giant comics festival in France, uh, that is a hell of a trip. Yeah. It's not something I think I could manage every year. But yeah, it, it is, is amazing. It takes, takes a lot out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was that a play? I mean, do you go there to look at other books or to, you know, to look at cartoonists? I mean, what do you what do you get out of going to a, to a foreign show? Um, a lot of it is um, meeting foreign publishers um, and talking about possible licensing deals. First Second brings in a lot of books from Europe, um, and our books are also licensed into Europe pretty frequently. So um, that's a big part of Angoulême for me is sort of the wheeling and dealing of it. Um, it's also really nice to be able to meet cartoonists sure. while we're there. I mean, we have a lot of French cartoonists on our roll, roll call, that's mm-hmm. a thing, um, who I don't ever get to see unless I'm, right. you know, in France, and sometimes not even then, because Angoulême for them is sort of like, you know, they're American cartoonists who are like, ugh, San Diego, you wouldn't catch me <laughs> dead there. So it's frustrating. You show up in France, you're like, I'm here for your giant-ass comics festival, and they're like, I'll be in my adorable villa, goodbye yeah, forever. And I like, know, oh, they, no. they think it's so stressful, yeah. and I'm like, come on, people. It's like, oh my I God. I traveled like a million miles, you can travel ten. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, they're distracting, I'm sure. Um, Calissa, just, uh, we're going to wrap wrap up, we're running out of time here, but uh, just to talk a little bit more about 2015, other books that you want to mention that, that you are so excited about for 2015. I would be remiss in the extreme were I not to mention 
the sculptor. Oh my, a little guy named Scott McCloud. This yes. this nobody named Scott McCloud who nobody has ever heard of. And I'm gonna do something I'm probably not supposed to do, and I'm just gonna like put this in front of your face really quick. Oh, oh my, it's the hardcover. Oh, it's beautiful. It has like a dust jacket. Oh, it's got it's it's awesome, guys. It has like like the beautiful duotone printing, which I love so much. Now, you know, this book, um, interestingly, like, I mean, I know Mark worked on this book. Yeah, and my I'm, involvement in this was pretty much strictly uh, production. And and interestingly, now this is a whole other conversation, but just to, to uh, I know that Mark and Scott, you know, where I'm sure that this was a one-sentence pitch, where it might have been like, um, uh... You know, oh, I have a new graphic novel. Will you publish it? And it was probably it wasn't. In fact, yeah. it was it was not a one sentence pitch because Scott McCloud is not a one sentence pitch kind of guy. <laughs> um, Scott McCloud is a I'm going to show up at your offices with my PowerPoint ready and my pitch perfected, and I'm going to blow your mind kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he stacks the deck a bit then. Um, but I uh, interestingly, I know him and Mark. Yeah, spent. They a worked long together. Long time. Yeah, like, this hammering is a, out this book. This yeah. is a good example of a book that sort of has been through the Ringer editorial and that came out much stronger for it. Mark and Scott have a really remarkable editorial relationship. I mean, an editorial relationship, like any kind of relationship, is mostly personal chemistry at the end of the day. And those two really, they know how to work with each other. They're very, very good. Sort of, they make a very good creative partnership. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that book, I believe that Scott wrote and thumbnailed and then rewrote and re-thumbnailed and rewrote and re-thumbnailed a third time. I mean, he basically, it's, you hear stories about what David Mazzucchelli did with Asterius Polyp, how he, like, completed and scrapped that book a number right. of times. This is a similar thing, and it really shows. Yeah. This is a polished novel. It really is. It yeah. really, again, hits on all those different levels. Um, well, uh, I, I see that we're out of time. And, oh. uh, is there any other book, real quick, real quick? Oh, no, what am I going to do? I have oh, to think no. of a book. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, uh, are you, let's see, we talked a little wait, bit. Wait, Count Spatula? Count Spatula. Yeah. Um, so Princess Decomposing and Count Spatula is coming out this spring. It is by Andy Watson, who you guys might know from Glister and other similar projects. Um, this is our first book with Andy, but he does have a huge and amazing backlist. Oh, yeah, he has been at this for a long yeah. time. And, uh, you know, a proven, talk about a proven track record, so... Um, this is a book about a sort of uh, much put upon princess of the underworld and her sort of right hand man, um, the vampire chef with a sweet tooth, Count Spatula. Um, and it is just, it's the sweetest, funniest, most endearing book, and it has a gorgeous cover, and I'm very excited yeah, for it. Yeah, I'm excited, too. I don't think Andy's really had a high-profile book for a while, no, so... No, he hasn't really, I don't think. So it'd be nice to see him come back. Well, yeah. um, Callista, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for and, coming. This yeah, was so fun. and it is, and it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a great year for, for a second, obviously, but as we like to say, I know that there's more to come. 